This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, former Congresswoman, longtime national security insider, and former Wilson Center President Jane Harmon on how the U.S. has failed to confront some of its most challenging national security issues. Her book is called Insanity Defense, Why Our Failure to Confront Hard National Security Problems Make Us Less Safe. She's interviewed by former Homeland Security Secretary Janet Napolitano. Representative Harmon, uh, good to see you. Uh, I enjoyed your book. Uh, you entitled it Insanity Defense. Uh, why t- title it that way? Well, I will explain uh, after I say a couple things about my in- inter- interrogator or whatever you are, my friend. <laughs> um, just to point out that there are some very long friendships in politics and policy. And I was thinking about it that uh, in the 70s, mid-70s perhaps, when each of us was five, uh, Janet Napolitano was an associate in a law firm. Uh, The principal's name was John Frank, and my name was Jane Frank at the time. And uh, I met her. She was smart as a whip, no, no surprise and has gone through all the big political jobs in Arizona, uh, and then came to Washington uh, to become Secretary of Homeland Security when I was in Congress on the Homeland Security Committee, so we overlapped there, and then had the wisdom to go to to Paradise, California, uh, where I am still a resident, and I knew her in her last incarnation at the, uh, you know, running the University of California system, and I'm thrilled now that she's at Berkeley, uh, which is headed by a wonderful chancellor, Carol Christ, also a good friend. So just wanted to say that not only can I remember this, um, but uh, kudos, my friend, you have had a spectacular career so far. So how in the world did I name this book Insanity Defense? The name is getting so much attention. Well, it wasn't my idea. I actually had a very boring title in mind that, that's relevant to the topic. And I was talking to my fourth child, uh, a daughter, who's a writer. And I said, so I'm writing this book, and here's what it's about, and this is the title. Mother, that's so boring. (laughs) The right title is Insanity Defense. and I mean, just out of her mouth. And she said, that will excite the audience. That tells what you're talking about. And I said, sold. You know, it's a wrap. And what it means, um, I'm sure we all know, everyone listening in and watching, is that Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result is the definition of insanity. And that's what I talk about over three decades. Right. And, and uh, uh, your, your book is, is a kind of a fascinating exposition of uh, particularly your time in Congress. But why don't you share with our viewers um, how you came to be a member of Congress? Give them a little bit of the story of Jane Harmon. <laughs> Will do. So I grew up in Los Angeles, just uh, said I, I was, uh, I am still a Californian, uh, public school kid. And with my then boyfriend, um, whom I'm actually still in touch with, who also moved to Washington, uh, I went, I went to the Democratic National Convention in Los Angeles in 1960. You know, believe me, I was minus 10 years old. We both were. And we got on the floor of the convention. There was not, you know, massive security back in the day. And I saw the nomination of John Kennedy and I met Eleanor Roosevelt and some of the other luminaries. And I, at that moment, had my life epiphany, which was, is that I love politics. And I uh, was an usher at the Los Angeles Coliseum where Kennedy gave his acceptance speech I got active in, in politics in, in high school. I uh, co-ran my Democratic club in, in, in college and, you know, was just hooked. I went to law school because I thought that uh, my, 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 my unscientific survey showed me that uh, at least a third of, of uh, people serving in Congress are lawyers. I think it's probably higher. And uh, that was what I was interested in. And then... Uh, I practiced law briefly, lived abroad briefly, but uh, migrated to the Senate where I was a senior aide to a California senator named John Tunney. I think that's when I got involved with John Frank because we, I, I, I headed a subcommittee working on access to the law, access to lawyers. 
And he was then, I think, uh, either the head of or a senior member of the American Bar Association. But at any rate, worked for John Tunney for five years um, at a time when there were almost no women in, in roles like that. I was chief counsel to the Subcommittee on Constitutional Rights, worked in the Carter White House uh, for two years as the deputy cabinet secretary, uh, and then was a practicing lawyer and, and so forth during the dark years of the Reagan administration, which looking back on them were not so dark. Um, I can see many things he did right. Uh, and then uh, found the opportunity to run for Congress uh, where I had grown up. And um, it was kind of daunting because the district lines were changed in 1992. There's a redrawing of congressional lines every 10 years based on the census. And uh, what I thought was a safe Democratic seat became a lean Republican seat. Um, but I add that means Republicans are more likely to win, very almost even registration. And I uh, won against the odds. One of my opponents was Maureen Reagan, uh, daughter of Ronald Reagan, who was then retired uh, and uh, was helping her win. However, uh, the California Democratic Party elected uh, uh, someone else to be my opponent. And that, uh, that other person was far more conservative and not pro-choice. Uh, Maureen Reagan was pro-choice, and that was the searing issue of that year, 1992. Uh, Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas, for anyone who remembers that. And, the year of the woman. Yeah, it was the year of the woman. And uh, women doubled the number of seats uh, in Congress. Two women were uh, elected from my state as senators, uh, Diane Feinstein and Barbara Boxer, and Feinstein is still serving. And uh, there I was, and it was a great ride until I really was gagging on the partisanship. And that was why I left, I'm sure you're gonna ask me this, uh, in 2011 to uh, um, succeed Lee Hamilton, a wonderful mentor and friend as the president, first woman president of the Wilson Center, a, a, a very well-known think tank in Washington. And I just left that after 10 years. And I'm now uh, president emerita and uh, planning my next uh, career. Uh, and you're now an author too. Now I'm an author. And, and oh, by the way, uh, the quarantine was horrible for everybody, far worse for others than for me and my family. But the one upside for me is, was I spent a huge amount of time in my house. I was running the Wilson Center, but I also uh, wrote the book that I had been planning to write for years. And I finally had enough time to write it. Right. So um, uh, there's a, a lot in the book about 9-11 and its aftermath. Um, uh, one of the um, results of the attack of 9-11 was uh, the decision to create a new Department of Homeland Security. Uh, can you uh, share a little bit the thinking behind that? And ha has the department met your expectations? Well, I, I already said, and I think it, you might be familiar, Madam Secretary, <laughs> that you were one of the occupants uh, running that uh, department over the years. Uh, but there is a backstory, and I do tell it in the book. Um, yeah. The government was not prepared for 9-11. I think every single vertical human knows that. In spite of warnings by several commissions, I actually served on one, uh, and acts of terrorism against uh, the U.S. and the world, the first World Trade Center bomb, bombing and the blowing up of two of our embassies in Africa. Uh, in spite of that, our government was not prepared, basically caught flat-footed. It was one of two major intelligence failures uh, within a short period. The other one was the uh, uh, totally wrong uh, uh, estimate uh, of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, which caused us to invade Iraq, and then there were no weapons of mass destruction. But at any rate, after 9-11, um, the good news, uh, it was horrible news, but the good news it was that, that the country reacted as a country. Uh, America reacted. It wasn't, gee, it's your fault. No, it's her fault. Uh, and both political parties uh, voted together on strategies uh, to make America safer and better. And uh, one of the things we did early was to authorize the use of military force in Afghanistan against those who attacked us. I'm sure we'll talk about this later. Um, but we, many of us, and I uh, had, you know, fairly senior position on the Intelligence Committee. And, and in 2004, the Homeland Security Committee was formed. And I became a member of that as well, and ultimately 
chaired its intelligence subcommittee. But at any rate, uh, we did think that um, there ought to be a homeland security, dedicated homeland security function in the White House. And President Bush, 43, uh, created one. And uh, Tom Ridge, former governor of Pennsylvania, uh, was in the post. And I tell some funny stories about that. But at any rate, uh, we, we the, the hearty little group on Capitol Hill, bipartisan, thought uh, that position should have more power uh, to direct a homeland response across the government. We were not plotting to create a new department. But what happened was uh, that um, there were just increasing clues, uh, or there were, it was clear that there were missed clues on 9-11. That's what, what it was. And one of them was a, uh, that an FBI uh, agent in the Midwest had uh, noticed, this is before 9-11, that uh, some folks were taking uh, flight instruction, air, air flight, airplane, they were at an air, airplane that, you know, pilot, pilot training. Pilot, yes, that's what they were doing. And But they weren't interested in taking off and landing. They were on, only interested in how do you fly the plane, uh, which obviously caught the attention of the in, in, instructors at the school. It was reported to the FBI. And this woman named Colleen Rowley uh, wrote a report about this sent to FBI Central, which got very little attention until it was about to leak and get major attention. Uh, in the newspapers, I, th I think the New York Times, I'm not positive. But at any rate, the Rowley memo was about to hit the front page when out of nowhere, it seemed, Andy Card, who was chief of staff at the time to President Bush 43, uh, basically announced that they supported a new Department of Homeland Security uh, and that 88 departments and agencies would, put, would be put under one banner and functions combined uh, to protect the homeland. And of course, this announcement knocked the Rowley memo off the front page. And there it was. I mean, President Bush 43 supported a new department. So there we were on Capitol Hill saying, oh my goodness, uh, how, how did this happen? And what do we do? And we decided that although we had been in favor of a smaller function in the White House, uh, this was gonna get legs because the president supported it, and we were better off supporting it uh, rather than opposing it, uh, because we did want a stronger homeland function. And over time, that became this new department, which was uh, a gigantic reorganization of government. And there were some kinks along the way, uh, and still are. Uh, but I would say now, uh, uh, I don't know if it's quite two decades yet, but close enough to two decades in, uh, the place is sorting out and it can do a lot of things uh, that are very useful for the government and people have gotten used to the uh, reorganization and um, a huge, I'm sure you'll ask me about this, we have you know huge issues uh, with uh, immigration on the border, we have huge issues with cyber, uh, we have huge issues with domestic terrorism and all of those basically fit under the umbrella of the Department of Homeland Security. Yeah, the Department of Homeland Security is a behemoth. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, it's, it's the largest reorganization of the federal government since the creation of the Department of Defense um, in the aftermath of, of World War II. So, uh, um, but, but it, um, I will acknowledge it's had some uh, pains uh, along the way doing any kind of reorg like that is is uh challenging uh um but um i also would agree that um uh the department now i'm going to exclude the trump years but uh, the department uh now is uh, uh very much evolved since its initial yeah. initial phase. You know, one thing that hasn't evolved about it is the issue of congressional oversight. You mentioned that there are, and you mentioned in the book, there are 88 committees and subcommittees of uh, the Congress that exercise some sort of jurisdiction over uh, the Department of Homeland Security. Do you think there's any realistic way for, for that to be reformed? That was one of the recommendations of the 9-11 Commission, and uh, it's the one that hasn't had any action yet. So That is right. Well, 
I misspoke because I said the department was 88 uh, functions. It was 22 functions, only 22, excuse only me. 20. Only the largest reorg in history other than the Pentagon, right? Right. Like that. But Congress does, or did last time I checked, have uh, um, 88 committees and subcommittees with some piece of jurisdiction over the Homeland Security Enterprise, uh, which is absurd. And I remember... Um, um, less in your case, but when I, Michael Chertoff, who was another of the uh, secretaries of Homeland Security, this was, he was a Bush appointee, another excellent secretary, um, uh, had to testify all over the place all the time. So you are correct that the, that the 9-11 commission, uh, which was created, a non-bipartisan uh, commission co-chaired by Lee Hamilton, again, my predecessor at the Wilson Center, and Tom Kane, a former governor of, of New Jersey, uh, recommended that Congress reorganize. And, you know, my, my answer to that is forget about it. Uh, <laughs> Congress has a 19th century structure. I mean, it has an agriculture committee. Think about that. I'm not, I'm not diminishing the fact that ag is a, is a major industry in some states in the country. But I think uh, when you think about it, to devote all those resources to ag, I don't know what percentage of the U.S., GDP it is, and, and so much so many fewer resources to Homeland Security makes no sense. Uh, I was on the committee for eight years, and, and the frustration was that uh, very often we wanted to do something, and we discovered that we didn't have jurisdiction to do it. The, the jurisdiction was actually in some other committee, and the chairman of the committee, who was and still is, Benny Thompson of uh, Mississippi, uh, used to ask for more jurisdiction. And uh, yeah, yeah, we'll consider it, we'll consider it, and uh, uh, don't hold your breath. But the, it is the largest, you are correct, the largest um, uh, unfulfilled uh, uh, suggestion of the 9-11 Commission, and I predict it will be unfulfilled for a while longer. <laughs> Sad but true. You know, another impact of 9-11, and you've already uh, mentioned this, was the decision to invade Iraq, which you supported at the time. Uh, um, but it was based on uh, serious mistakes in the intelligence, um, given all of the intelligence uh, agencies, et cetera, throughout the federal government, um, what is your analysis of how we got the intel so wrong? Well, uh, back back then, uh, let's understand. You mentioned the 1947 uh, National Security Act that created the the Defense Department structure. It also created our intelligence structure, and what it created was a couple of little old agencies. Uh, one of which was called the is called the CIA, which had some management functions over a community, the intelligence community. It was called Community Management Service, uh, run by the CIA. So uh, things went along over the years, and the CIA was very much challenged in the uh, uh, technology department. It basically was a human spy agency for years. And when I was elected to Congress in, in uh, 1992, uh, which was the first uh, post-Cold War uh, class uh, in the year of the woman, um, I got very interested in all this because my district made my congressional district in Southern California, most of our intelligence satellites. So we were building up our technology, but again, we had a bunch of silos. We had human, human intelligence. Then we had SIGINT. SIGINT is what we can uh, listen to, um, mostly from satellites. And there were a lot of other ints, each one in a silo. And then we had the FBI in a different place, which mostly focused on domestic intelligence. So as I have said often, my, my breathless soundbite is, uh, no business in the world could operate under a 1947 business model now. And this was just two, two decades ago, but that's still true. So leading up to the Iraq war, that's what you asked me, after the major intelligence failure on 9-11, uh, we had a bunch of talented, you know, uh, uh, serious folks who didn't talk to each other. That, who didn't connect the dots. Uh, and we also had uh, in, in Dick Cheney, then the vice president, and a few others, uh, some ideologues in government at the time who believed a theory 
uh, I, I guess you'd call it the, the sort of freedom theory that if we could knock off uh, Saddam Hussein, whom they thought was a bad guy, I don't think anyone wants to defend him, certainly I don't, but if we could knock him off, we could change uh, Iraq into a democracy and that uh, idea would have the domino effect of changing many other governments into democracies. And so when, uh, and uh, they were called neocons, neoconservatives. So uh, there were two things going on before the Iraq National uh, Intelligence Estimate, the NIE, that was fatally flawed. One was the neocons had a theory of change that they wanted to support with an intelligence argument. The other was the intelligence community wasn't a community and it was disaggregated. So uh, we ended up with uh, a cherry picked, um, uh, sloppily assembled case for invading Iraq. And um, shame on me, that's in the book. I read everything. I read uh, the supporting evidence they had. I read the intelligence estimate carefully. I traveled to uh, 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 the United Kingdom or Britain, which had still has some extremely competent intelligence agencies. They also bought the case. And I traveled to the Middle East. Uh, and I came home, and this is in the book, and I told my late husband, Sidney Harmon, that I read everything. I'm going to vote for the Iraq war uh, because I believed that Iraq, I didn't believe the neocon uh, theory of democracy, but I did believe that the intelligence showed that that uh, America was at risk and possibly it could be attacked, especially by the chemical and biological weapons that Saddam Hussein had, uh, and, and that he was also building nuclear capacity. At any rate, I come home and I tell my late husband, who was a vaunted businessman, that I'm voting for the Iraq war. And he gives this in the book, he gives me the look, you know, rolling his eyes. You're gonna do what? And I said, I've read everything. You don't know anything about this. Uh, you run a, a major successful business, uh, but uh, you, you don't, you haven't done, you haven't done the homework. And he just rolled his eyes again and he said, it's a lot of crap and you'll see. And guess what? Uh, turns out I was, he was a better uh, intelligence analyst or intelligence oversight person than I. And when we learned later that one of the key sources, uh, a German uh, guy, uh, had never been vetted uh, by us. And the Germans told us that he was unreliable. And when we learned also that the State Department intelligence function called INR uh, was, did not believe the case uh, in, the, in the NIE, uh, it was embarrassing. And that, all that led to one of the successful things I did. You know, I made a lot of mistakes, which was to join a small group which... Uh, uh, accomplished one of the other recommendations of the 9-11 uh, Commission, which was to establish a coordinating function across the intelligence community uh, called the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. And I was just going to go there. Uh, um, and and the, the story of the creation of the ODNI um, or DNI, Director of National Intelligence, is, is really a signature accomplishment of, of your time in the Congress. Um, and um, uh, I'm not sure that it could be created in today's uh, uh, world in the Congress, but uh, maybe you could share with the viewers um, some of the ins and outs of what you went through to, to bring that legislation over the goal line. Well, uh, let's understand uh, it finally passed in 2004, which is centuries ago in political time. And that was a time when uh, the parties talked to each other and it was a much more functional place. Congress actually thought about enacting laws to solve problems and put the country first. I know some some people watching this might think I'm delusional uh, that I lived through this period, but I did. And probably all of you did too, or most of you. But at any rate, uh, setting up this, this uh, joint command function was a recommendation of the 9-11 Commission. It also was a recommendation of something called the, the joint inquiry on 9-11. What in the world was that? That was a, uh, a, a, not a group, it was both intelligence committees, House and Senate, 
which met together, try this, Democrats and Republicans all together, bipartisan, bicameral. I know people are probably wondering if I'm, I'm you know, taking my meds today. In the dome of the Capitol, the intelligence rooms used to be in the Capitol dome, uh, which many think was the intended target of the fourth airplane on 9-11, which went down on a, in a field in Pennsylvania due to the heroism of the passengers. But anyway, we, we met there. And one of the, the cute stories is there's a big dais hearing room, but you know, all of us piling in there were too many. So they had to set up little card tables below the dais and cover them with paper cloths like, like a kitty party. And I would call them the kitty tables. And I sat at one and a lot of friendships were formed then. Dan Coates, I think was at my kitty table. Dan Coates to remind Republican, he got along fine, um, later became ambassador to Germany and then ultimately uh, the DNI until he was unceremoniously pushed out by President Trump. Uh, and this is a conservative Republican who uh, came back to serve because his president asked. Anyway, uh, so uh, we, that was a recommendation of the 9-11, uh, the joint inquiry too. So I and others introduced legislation uh, to create this new function. Uh, we didn't, we, we did, a, it was pretty quickly done in the House, even though there was some strong opposition by some Republicans, uh, one of whom was Vice President Cheney, surprise, and another of whom was Duncan Hunter, uh, the father, who then chaired the uh, House Armed Services Committee. But uh, my, my chairman, I was ranking member, Pete Huckstra, uh, a Republican from Michigan, and I stayed close and we're tough, and he was very brave to do it. And we ultimately got the bill passed by the House, and then it was an even harder slog in the Senate where... Uh, Susan Collins, who still serves, uh, she's the sole Republican member in the Northeast, by that. Uh, but where Susan Collins, I think, chaired at the time the Senate Homeland Committee, and Joe Lieberman, uh, who was first a Democrat and then an independent, was her ranking member. So it was Lieberman, Collins, Harmon, and Huckstra. And we were the so called Big Four working out the differences in the bills. And, and it was hard. And we did it. We, we met late at night in the in the office of Speaker Dennis Hastert of the House, Republican Speaker Hastert. And of course, I tell the story that we got along so well because we drank all his wine, which we probably did. Uh, and uh, there's another cute story about Susan and Jane uh, going out after one of these meetings to have a nightcap at a hotel near the Hill. Now, Bistro Beast, you say? Bistro Beast. Well, yeah. I don't know that everybody knows where Bistro Beast is. Well, C-SPAN folks would because it's near C-SPAN. And uh, uh, some guy sends over uh, two glasses of wine. And I thought, uh-oh, what, what is this? <laughs> so I asked the waiter, what, why, who, who is this person? And all it was was a guy seeing us chatting so closely together and saying, how nice, they must be sisters. I would just like to celebrate that. And uh, that's what happened. So, I mean, it was... It was hard and we got it done. Uh, and uh, it took a while, like everything else, uh, to get its sea legs. But I think right now, under its first woman director, Avril Haynes, uh, it is doing the job we intend. And, and talk a little bit about your relationship with Senator Collins. Um, I, I, I found that one of the really nice insights in the book, but maybe you could just Say a few words. So um, there are now a lot of women in the House and Senate. Back in my day, or initially in my day, there were about 30 in the House, and I'm not sure how many in the Senate. 30 out of 435, uh, that's not a huge percentage. But, but now there are over 100. And in the Senate, uh, I think it's 25% female, or maybe more, actually. Uh, but at any rate, uh, what happened, and still happens, is the women get along, by and large. And there are women's caucuses in each house and they're very productive. And I think uh, there are monthly lunches or monthly dinners in the Senate. I'm not sure what happens in the house, maybe too big to, to make. And, and the house has gone through a, it seems to me a steep decline in terms of uh, uh, comity and civility. So I don't know if it still meets, but I think it does in the Senate. And um, Susan and I became friends 
um, through a, another senator, you would know Arizona Senator John Kyle, who thought we would like each other. Kyle's a Republican conservative, but he and I worked closely together on defense issues, and I knew him pretty well. And he said, I want to introduce you to my, my colleague, Susan. And then we were paired on this uh, uh, DNI project, and it just clicked. And I, I say in the book that Harry Truman was wrong. Uh, he said uh, that if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog. Um, I'm not saying that's wrong, but I think, at least in my life, uh, my dog died. So I don't ha have a dog friend. Uh, in my life, if you want a friend in Washington, get a girlfriend. And I describe carefully the uh, relationships I've had with women uh, mentors, even before I served. My, my principal woman mentor before I served was Geraldine Ferraro, whom I was extremely close to. But Susan and I, uh, you know, it, the, the friendship endures and doesn't mean we agree on everything. In fact, we specifically disagreed on a couple of big ones in the last few years. But the, the friendship endures. Uh, when she got engaged, I went crazy. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, <laughs> and uh, among other things, hosted her big engagement party at my home. And it was, that was a big bipartisan gathering. I don't know if that could happen anymore. Uh, and she tried on her wedding dresses in my house. And when she got married in Caribou, Maine, if, if you think that's a, an actual place uh, on a map, you're wrong. It's like Brigadoon. It comes out, out of the mist and it, there it is for, <laughs> for 10 minutes. And getting there was horrific. Uh, I mean, it was, it was a family gathering. I was uh, in, a, in a very small group. And I finally arrived after... Uh, you know, planes, trains, and automobiles uh, nine hours later, uh, just in time for her rehearsal dinner. And there's Susan standing outside in the rain. Of course, it would be raining um, with a drink in hand for me. Good call. Uh, but she said, shouldn't have come, shouldn't have come. Uh, it was way too hard for you. And I said, Susan, I would have walked. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's that good a friendship and it, it means a lot to me and I think it means a lot to her. And, uh, I, I, I value that so much and it made serving there, uh, so much better. And it, it, maybe it still makes her, her service there. I mean, it's not easy being there, uh, better because we still have each other. Yeah. Um, one of, your chapters is entitled The Fog of Law, uh, and which I thought was a wonderful chapter title. Um, but now I'm hearkening back to your days, not only as a, a member of Congress, but as a very, very good lawyer. Um, and uh, maybe you could uh, describe for the viewers what you mean by the fog of law. This also is an aftermath of the invasion of Iraq, but... Very much so. Okay. Um, well, um, yes, it's also, uh, uh, it also relates to our staying in Afghanistan after we accomplished the immediate mission authorized by Congress and ended up with a lot of hard problems. The book covers many of them. And there was a fog of law, meaning the law wasn't clear on what we should be doing. The fog of law, the, the term uh, is adapted from the fog of war. Uh, many have known for years that it is very unclear uh, going into a battle or even into a war how it's going to come out. And one of the questions I now ask myself about everything in life uh, is one that, that for, uh, retired General Dave Petraeus always asks. And so I've certainly, and he's become a very good friend. He was involved in Afghanistan, Iraq. Uh, he ran Central, Central Command. He was CIA director in my time. So I know him well, uh, but his, his question is, how will this end? And we didn't ask that question enough. And so the fog of, war, of law was the title of a speech I gave at Georgetown Law School um, about a year after the Iraq, or no, maybe it was, I'm not exactly sure when it was, but I sort of toted up all the things we are doing, we're doing, some of which we are still doing because it's too hard to answer hard questions, uh, and, uh, and said that it's very unclear, uh, especially to folks who have to be the actors carrying out these, these, these uh, uh, programs, 
uh, what they're supposed to do. And we don't have a legal framework around the whole thing. We have a patchwork. Uh, and it turned out, for example, in the um, uh, first term of Bush 43, uh, that a lot of what we were doing in the surveillance area was not in compliance. I didn't know this at the time, but I explained it was not in compliance with the law that relates to it called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Why wasn't it? It wasn't because uh, Vice President Cheney and others uh, assumed that Congress would not do a good job and, and maybe should even be cut out of amending FISA, that's the acronym, to cover these things. So what did they do? They went to the Justice Department and got the Office of Legal Counsel, in other words, the in-house lawyer for the Justice Department, to write some opinions justifying what they were doing. And so when I asked the question, is what you're doing in full compliance with the law? The answer always was yes, but it wasn't in full compliance with the law Congress passed. It was in full compliance with some legal opinions by the Justice Department. And one that many people have heard of are some legal opinions written by a guy named John Yu, Y-O-O, who's now a tenured professor at, uh, at uh, Berkeley Law School. And they had to do with the definition of torture and some other things uh, directly relevant to how we uh, interrogated uh, those we detained in connection with, with uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. And Yu's uh, definition was that torture is, is uh, uh, bodily harm, no, is imminent death. Uh, or serious organ failures. Serious organ failure or imminent death. Yeah. And that's his definition of torture, which does not comply with the definition in U.S. law. It does not comply with the definition in the in the uh, uh, Geneva Conventions, which is the international uh, agreement that we struck uh, after World War II. So um, you just was freelancing and Cheney and Proud wanted that to be the definition. And you was actually afterwards questioned on his uh, uh, legal reasoning. And the guy who questioned him, Jack Goldsmith, was then the head of OLC, the Office of Legal Counsel. And, and Goldsmith got pushed out for doing that. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, the, the fog of law refers to surveillance. It refers to uh, how we treat um, detainees um, and uh uh, it, and it also concerns uh, what we do about uh, Guantanamo uh, and, and Gitmo, as as we re refer to it often. Um, uh, and and you describe in the book some of the legal issues with respect to how we treat detainees and um, how we adjudicate whether they have actually committed um, the acts for which they are being uh, detained. Uh, but closing Gitmo, it turns out, is once you've uh, once you started putting people there, it's very difficult. So um, uh, uh, maybe let me ask you this question: um, There are still inmates being held at Gitmo. What would you advise President Biden to do about that? So. Um... Again, one of my mistakes, which I describe in the book, was going to Gitmo for the first time when we hastily set it up. We didn't have actual prison facilities uh, built. So what did we do? We used uh, basically chicken wire to create uh, different cells. Uh, and just imagine this, these guys uh, uh, taken off the battlefield or in other places wearing orange jumpsuits and in these chicken wire, some call them cages. Uh, by the way, the whole prison system of communicating was worked out then. And, uh, you know, we, we, did, we anticipated almost nothing. But so I go to Gitmo with a group of uh, congressional members. We're in the launch between the airfield and the actual prison. You have to go over water. And I asked the Army Three Star, why is this prison here? And he says, to be beyond the reach of U.S. law. Now, Janet, you are a talk about a skilled lawyer. Uh, you knew, and I actually knew too, I went to a, I'm sorry, I didn't go to what was then called Bowles Hall, but I, I went, I, I went to uh, Harvard Law School and I knew that you couldn't build a prison that way and have it run by Americans bringing, uh, uh, folks there that we, that we get apprehended. And, uh, 
I knew that would, that that was not constitutional. It took the Supreme Court some years to come to that conclusion, but that's the conclusion. So now the folks who were there are entitled to lawyers and U.S. process. But at any rate, I didn't say anything. Why didn't I say anything? Because I thought maybe there's something I don't understand. It's soon after 9-11. I, gee, I, I, you know, maybe just maybe it would be maybe that's basically it. Maybe I'd be putting the country in danger. But we made a huge mistake to set it up there. We brought people there who had been treated, you know, who had uh, suffered the torture that 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 didn't meet John Hughes' definition. Uh, so in many cases, uh, or in some cases, these folks were waterboarded. We later learned that was one of the techniques. And we can talk about that too, because I was briefed on that after it was used. Oh, I guess while it was used. And, uh, and other... Uh, other things that would not comply with the U.S. definition of torture. And so in, in legal jargon, the evidence against them, to the extent it was uh, uh, gotten, is tainted because the you know improper means were used to get it. So these people go to Guantanamo Bay. Originally, there were hundreds. Now we're down to 40 high-value targets, we call them. And uh, one of them, the mastermind of 9-11, a guy named Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, was waterboarded numerous, numerous times. And what do we do? Uh, we keep them there. I mean, they can't be tried, basically. They have lawyers. Uh, we keep talking about military commissions. They always get postponed. My proposal, and I included this in a recent op-ed, is that we, that Congress, let's see if this is doable, enact a doctrine which we've never had in this country called uh, of preventive detention. So at least they have a status. And in that status, their, their uh, situations are reviewed on a periodic basis. They really can't be tried, but they certainly could be treated in a more formal way. And I would argue that uh, Gitmo should be closed and they should be moved to the United States. Uh, and you know, I don't buy it that this would be a huge danger uh, to our communities, because we actually did try and convict 400 people after uh, 9/11, or even after the first attack on the on the uh, uh, World Trade Center of terrorism-related crimes, and they're in supermax prisons. You know, very austere, very well-guarded places, and there is no evidence that any of them has escaped. So we're talking about 40 folks who could be. Uh, put in this preventive detention program and move to a supermax prison someplace. And then we would close Gitmo, which is a stain, I think, just a stain on, on, on the U.S. rule of law and also a recruiting tool for the bad guys who say, look, this is how, how, how these uh, you know, people treat. This is how the United States treats people. This is why they are, you know, they, they, their culture is, is uh, corrupted and, and uh, we have we are right to attack them. Yeah, yeah. You know, you 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 mentioned this a bit earlier. You touched upon it a little, a little bit earlier, but the administration at that time uh, uh, supported something called the unitary theory of the executive, uh, um, and um, one of its big proponents is David Addington, who I went to public high school with in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So you know, it's it's That's interesting how. Things, yeah. Um, however. Um, uh, really what the unitary theory of the executive is, is that anytime the president is uh, acting in any kind of international uh, capacity, he has almost, he has sole authority and Congress is just kind of a bit player. Um, and that's kind of a tension that runs through the book, uh, the, 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 the tension between the executive branch and the legislative branch. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Uh, and I got to know Addington in, in his role as Cheney's lawyer. And I had a couple of encounters and I described one of them, which was extremely amusing. Uh, and he's a courtly bright man. Um, so uh, I guess that's because he went to high school with you, Janet. That's right. <laughs> but anyway, so. Um, he, was, he was the best man at my brother's wedding. <laughs> my, 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 my. Okay. Uh, so. Uh, the Constitution has uh, sets up three branches of government, the legislative branch under Article One, the executive branch under Article Two and the courts, Article Three. The legislative branch, to remind, Article One passes the laws and funds the government. 
the executive branch supposedly carries out the laws uh, and is subject to review uh, by the legislative branch to make sure that the administration, uh, that the handling of, of matters under the law is done properly. And then the federal courts decide if the laws passed by, con- by Congress uh, pass muster under the Constitution. That's how it's supposed to work. Uh, it, the separation of powers has been a, a really good concept uh, over our 230 plus years of existence and worked pretty well. And Congress was, uh, I think, enormously skilled at foreign policy uh, over the years uh, until it wasn't, until it started this slippery slope to uh, political and toxic uh, partisanship. Uh, but at any rate, um, the, the Cheney-Addington theory of the unitary executive means that we will do what we think is right. Uh, the president is the commander in chief. That is true uh, and, and designated that in Article 2. And if and when we feel like it, we will let Congress know what we're doing. And we will justify basically what we're doing uh, by a series of legal opinions issued by the Justice Department. We just talked about this. It's OLC opinions. And... Um, and certainly after 9-11, country under threat, uh, the president needs to exercise these commander-in-chief functions. So uh, it was really hard in Congress in a senior role on an oversight committee uh, to get information. And I got some, but uh, I mentioned already that I kept asking if uh, our actions fully comply with law and answered yes, but the, the law they were talking about was the OLC opinion, not the, the law Congress passed. And I, I think there still is executive overreach. The book has, the two last chapters are about the powerful executive. And then the last chapter is the incredible shrinking Congress. And I think this is unhealthy. And it's, this is not a ranch for uh, Democrats to take over everything. It's a ranch for uh, parties uh, that are, are people who are serious uh, and elected to public office in the Congress uh, put country over party uh, and try to solve some hard problems, which they have been ducking. Right. And, and um, you, you know, you've mentioned uh, several times the hyper-partisanship in Congress today. Um, what's, what's your um, analysis about how, how, that, how that has happened and, and what risks that poses to the American people? Well, there, there may be, it, it turns out that, that there were kind of raucous times uh, during the founding of our country and uh, the Federalist Papers and other documents weren't enacted without uh, uh, a, a, lot of, a lot of noise and, and fracturing. Uh, but, but what I'm saying is uh, over time, uh, our institutions function better. I'm not trying to put anything under the rug. Uh, until at least in my lifetime, the late 80s, when something called the negative ad was invented uh, by a uh, campaign consultant named Lee Atwater. And it turns out, since I ran for Congress so many times, I know this, that negative ads have much more, and you would know this too, uh, uh, penetrate much faster than positive ads. Uh, People just glom onto negative information. uh, And this has been perfected. So that was one of the tools that kind of fractured the comity between Democrats and Republicans. And then it also happened that uh, I think the, 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 the hearing, the, hearing uh, the Supreme Court nomination uh, of, of uh, Bork for the Supreme Court in, in the late 80s was the first time the Democratic Party also engaged in some of this. And uh, I, I think Ted Kennedy, uh, deceased, a great senator, would may not agree with me. And Joe Biden, who was then chairman of the, of the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, uh, running the hearing, may not agree with me. Uh, but it was an extremely contentious and uh, ugly hearing. And it, it, it ended in Bork not being confirmed. And so the 90s were the beginning of the slippery slope uh, to where we are. And lucky me, I came to Congress in the 90s. And I saw a lot of this up close and personal. And Newt Gingrich was in the book and whom I now get along with. I actually just did a, I was just on, uh, uh, in a conversation with him about the book. 
uh, on his blog. Uh, but Newt's theory of the case was um, we just got the majority. This was the Republicans in 1994. And to hold the majority, we have to be partisan. He admits that. And that was, uh, you know, very unhelpful. I mean, he said to me, in, as we were talking about his blo uh, the blog or maybe before, he said, uh, we certainly looked at you, but we figured we couldn't take you out. <laughs> so, I mean, is this because they wanted to take me out because I, I wasn't responsible? I wasn't bipartisan? I wasn't helpful? No, they wanted to take me out because I was uh, one of the members of the Democratic team and they wanted to be in the majority. So that attitude of uh, take out the other side, because if you work with them, you don't get enough power and you don't get reelected, is where we sadly are today. Do you think that Congress, as currently configured, um, is up to the task of national security and all of the oversight function, et cetera, that needs to be done there? I think that some members of Congress are up to the task. George Will, who no one would accuse of being a card-carrying uh, liberal, uh, just wrote a glowing op-ed about Jack Reed. Jack Reed is a Democrat uh, from Rhode Island who chairs uh, the Senate uh, Armed Services Committee and has for a long time. He's a former veteran. He's a Harvard Law School graduate. Let's not hold that against him. He has a master's degree from Kennedy School. And he knows a boatload about national defense. He's not the only one. Um, but I'm saying, and, and Will was all about how uh, we really have to refocus how we spend money on defense, which I completely agree with. And Reed is trying to do that. It's very hard uh, to reorganize stuff. You know, you and I can tell all our war stories. But my point is, there are really good members of Congress like him. There certainly was Sam Nunn. There was Dick Luger. Uh, they were extraordinary members of Congress. There was John McCain. So members of Congress are up to it. Uh, some of them serve on the relevant committees. Most people try to get on committees that reflect their district, as I did, or certainly that reflect their expertise. If Congress functioned better, if something called the regular order were observed, the regular order means that committees mark up bills and report them to the floor and deference is made to what committees do uh, before laws are passed. If all that happened, uh, we, Congress might have the expertise it needs and it might attract better people who have the expertise they would share, but it, it's a meat grinder now. You run for Congress uh, in some of these districts and you have very shrill uh, people on either end, uh, both the left and the right, uh, opposing you if you're anywhere in the center and want to solve problems. Bipartisanship is a dirty word and it's tragic. And so who loses? You ask me that. We lose the whole country and the members lose. I mean, they, it's not easy to get elected to Congress. You don't fall out of bed and get elected to Congress uh, or attorney general of a state or governor of a state or whatever. Doesn't happen like that. So, um, you work your tail off to get elected. Presumably, one of the motivations you have is to make the country better. Then you get into an institution where you really can't do that because the, you're on one side and they're on the other side. And the efforts to work together are, are, are basically, uh, and it's not every time, uh, but basically discounted uh, and, and politically um, dangerous. Yeah, I I, I, to, I totally agree with that. We're coming almost to the end of our uh, time together. Um, let me just uh, ask you if you could uh, give a few closing reflections on what you think are the major risks facing the country today, uh, as, as opposed to uh, when you came to Congress. Well, let's start with where we just ended, toxic partisanship. Uh, as we speak today, we're watching a couple of things, or in the last weeks, we're watching a couple of things happen in the Republican caucus in the House. Liz Cheney, the daughter of Dick Cheney, uh, who uh, bravely spoke her truth, was pushed out of leadership on the Republican side. Uh, and a lot of jokes were made about her and her father, and you know, finally regime change happened to a Cheney and all this silliness. But she's a <laughs> serious member of Congress. And 
whether you agree with it or not, I think the way this was handled uh, was, um, you know, very unfortunate. And then today, uh, this whole effort about uh, forming a uh, 1-6 commission, modeled after the 9-11 commission, uh, has uh, sadly, uh, so far as I know, resulted in a partisan vote. That doesn't mean it won't move through Congress. But the 9-11 vote was strongly bipartisan. And the respect for the leaders of the 9-11 commission, uh, Lee Hamilton and, and Tom Kane, w- was strong across the country. And the respect for their conclusions was strong. And shouldn't we know, I mean, that the, the first serious insurrection against our, our country uh, has been thoroughly investigated on a nonpartisan or bipartisan basis. We, we find out what, what really happened and then serious recommendations to prevent it from happening again are considered by a, uh, a Congress that wants to protect the country. That's what we should want. And neither of those things is happening. So I think toxic partisanship is the top of my list. I think, uh, um, you know, the breakdown of community and institutions is there too, because our, our country doesn't work properly. Uh, and people are in their silos listening to their, uh, their echo chamber uh, fueled by social media. I think this is hugely dangerous. Um, then I would say, uh, certainly focusing on, on the U.S., some things that the Biden administration has identified are the right things uh, that, are, that are big dangers for our country. One is the pandemic. We've all suffered. And there is progress in the U.S., but there needs to be progress in the world in order to prevent this from, from uh, coming back. And, and the human tragedy still here, and, but especially in other countries is gigantic. And if, if Biden wants a new pop, uh, foreign policy, I think you know, doing um, uh, uh, outreach to help the entire world uh, get the medicines that were invented here, uh, delivered by the logistics that we do better than anyone else is, is our best move. So pandemic, climate, uh, no one can miss it. Coming from California, and there you are, coming from California, it's a tinderbox, and there's a drought across the entire state. Uh, third issue is domestic terrorism, and that, again, is fueled by isolation and by uh, the toxic politics we have. So those are three. Um, sure, China has risen. We missed that in some ways. Um, but we, I think, can compete and cooperate with China. We actually are making a move that I, I, I just saw in today's news with Russia, uh, which is engaged in extremely bad behavior. And we have sanctioned them for some of their cyber efforts. Uh, but, but Secretary of State Blinken is meeting with Secretary of State Lavrov in the Arctic, which is a place where we actually cooperate, sort of. Uh, with Russia. And uh, the Biden administration just waived uh, the sanctions on uh, the head of uh, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. This is fascinating. That is a a Russian pipeline uh, skirting Ukraine going to Germany. And it's been a very contentious thing because it's Russia. And, um, you know, most of Europe, I think all of Europe, condemned Russia's uh, 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 invasion, basically, of Ukraine and Crimea. Um, but, but we, we, Europe engaged in sanctions on Nord Stream, uh, Angela Merkel was very unpopular for still wanting the oil to flow to Germany. It's not supposed to flow anywhere else. My conclusion just reading this is we are trying to offer a carrot to Russia in order to, uh, perhaps, uh, get cooperation in certain areas. Russia's working with us on a new agreement for Iran. So all I'm saying is, um, there are some interesting uh, uh, outreach by, by the Biden administration. And finally, they've come up with an interim national security strategy, uh, which is the first strategy I've seen over four presidencies. I, I make the point in my book that when uh, the Cold War ended, we didn't have a strategy. We thought we won, they lost, everybody wants to be us, game over. Well, oops, uh, it didn't turn out like that. Well, thank you. And uh, thank you, Jane. It's a, it's a wonderful book. I can't uh, recommend it um, uh, more highly. Anyone interested, either in politics or policy in the United States, uh, ought to read it. The title of the book is Insanity, Defense, 
Uh, it was great seeing you, Jane. Thanks for spending some time with me. Well, Janet, it's a, it's a long friendship. And remember, if you want a friend, get a girlfriend. And uh, I value this friendship. And I thought uh, um, you, your questions are exciting. Uh, I, we, we could go on for hours. And uh, it, you know, let's just make our country better. That would be my, my last line. You got that. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. You might be interested in C-SPAN's newest podcast, Book Notes Plus. Brian Lamb has wide-ranging conversations with authors and historians. The 30-minute podcast is available every Tuesday. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.